Flash Forward. I'm Rose and I'm your host. Flash Forward is a show about the future. Every episode we take on a specific possible or not so possible future scenario. Everything from the end of antibiotics to space pirates to a world full of face blind people. We start each future with a little trip to tomorrow before jumping back to today to talk to experts about how that future might really go down. Got it? Great. Today, we're going to start in the year 2112. Good morning, Alexander. You slept for six hours and 24 minutes last night, with only one major interruption. Your new water regimen seems to be working. Would you like to review today's votes? Today, there are 13 measures to vote on. You also have 28 measures you have not yet voted on. Would you like to see the measures that are expiring soon? HR 3546, Big Cat Public Safety Act. An act to amend the Lacey Amendments of 1981 to clarify provisions enacted by the Captive Wildlife Safety Act to further the conservation of certain wildlife species, and for other purposes. Would you like to hear more about this bill and vote on it? S-2280, Pro Bono Work to Empower and Represent Act or Power Act. An act to promote pro bono legal services as a critical way in which to empower survivors of domestic violence. Would you like to hear more about this bill and vote on it? SRES 230, a resolution designating September 25th as National Lobster Day. Would you like to hear more about this resolution and vote on it? HR 394, a bill to prevent the escapement of genetically altered salmon in the United States and for other purposes. Would you like to hear more about this bill and vote on it? GovTrack estimates that Bill HR 394 has a 19% chance of being enacted. Would you like to see how people in your area have voted on HR 394? So far, no one in your area has voted on HR 394. Would you like to see who has endorsed HR 394? So far, no one has endorsed HR 394. Would you like to hear the remainder of the measures you have not yet voted on? Voting is important, Alexander. Your voice counts. So this week, we're traveling to a future where the United States is a direct democracy. Everybody votes on everything. Nobody elects representatives to go to Washington and do things for them. We're going to focus on the U.S. specifically today, so I'm sorry, friends in other countries. I have not forgotten about you. It's just a little too much to try to think about how this would work in every country. Now, in case you haven't noticed, it is an election year in the United States. But for all of the, let's call them lively, Facebook debates that you might be seeing in your feed right now, a huge percent of Americans will not vote in this election. And even fewer of them will vote in the midterm elections that follow. According to the Pew Research Center, in 2012, just 53.6% of eligible voters in the United States actually voted. And only 36% voted in the 2014 midterm elections. For comparison, in Belgium, 87% of the population votes. In Turkey, 86% do. In a list of 34 highly developed democratic countries, the United States ranks 31st in voter turnout. So why don't Americans vote? 
There are a lot of reasons. Election Day is not a national holiday, and for those with multiple jobs and families to take care of, finding time to stand in line and vote simply doesn't happen. According to the Census Bureau, 28% of Americans who don't vote say they skip the polling place because they are too busy. But the second most common reason, at 16%, is that they are not interested. And 8% said they didn't vote because they disliked the candidates and the issues. Now, you've probably heard this kind of thing before. Maybe you are one of these people. Why vote? It hardly seems to matter these days. Right now, a lot of Bernie supporters that I know are declaring that if he doesn't get the nomination, they will not vote in the general election at all. Younger voters, the people who fall into the I can't believe I'm saying this word on my own podcast, but the millennial category in particular are unlikely to vote. In 2010, 75% of millennials did not vote. But here's a thing that I think is important to point out, and it's not just because I am trying to defend the honor of my generation, which seems to apparently be at fault for pretty much everything that is going wrong in the world right now. It's not that millennials are not political or that they don't care about politics. In fact, millennials are just as likely as past generations to do things like contact local government officials, volunteer in their communities, and go to protests or political gatherings. So they care about politics, but they don't care about voting. And it's not just young people who are frustrated with the political system in the United States. According to a 2015 Gallup poll, only 8% of Americans have confidence in Congress as an institution. 8%! That is incredible to me. So what if we did things differently? What if we put the vote back to the people and had Americans actually vote on the issues directly? What if America was a direct democracy? So direct democracy in America means something very specific. It means that the public uh, not just, you know, voted on their phone for a bill, but the public actually uh, went out and wrote the bill, basically authored a policy proposal. Uh, you go out, you collect some signatures, and once you get enough signatures, then you stick it on the ballot, and then people voted up or down on election day. And that's called the initiative and referendum. And that's what direct democracy really means in the United States. That's Carrie Melita. She's an associate professor of political science at Illinois State University, and she studies direct democracy. Now, there are actually states in America that have direct democracy systems. Absolutely. Uh, 24 out of the 50 states have what California has, where you can uh, write your own proposal, collect signatures, put it on the ballot, and you can amend your state law or you can amend your state's constitution. So it's about half the states have it. And in some states, this goes really well. Initiative states have uh, public approval levels that are usually about between, you know, 15 to 30 percentage points higher than non-initiative states. So it's a it's a sizable bump. States that have direct democracy, um, the electorates trust their government more. It's like a safety valve where they know that if the legislature oversteps its bounds, they can correct it. So they like government more. Um, they feel more efficacious. They think that they, uh, they're, they're more likely to believe that, hey, we can do something to change it if we're unhappy about it. Um, they're more likely to turn out to vote. They're more likely to possess high levels of political knowledge. So so even today, there is sort of, you know, a quasi-utopian uh, tendency in the direct democracy states. And in other states, 
it does not. But on the other hand, I would say look to California for the dystopian future. It's not uncommon at all to have 10 to 15 ballot measures, you know, on a ballot every year. So and that that's that's unusual uh, for American direct democracy, uh, California. We call it a high use state where they vote on so many uh, that that there's high levels of abstention. And what you end up with is a very small elite segment of voters end up deciding the policies, which really isn't that much more fair or utopian than having legislators that take big donations from, you know, corporations uh, deciding the policies. So you kind of end up back with that, you know, the, the special interest buying out votes, essentially. I used to live in California, and it seems like California can show us a couple of ways in which direct democracy can go wrong. The first is just the number of ballot measures. I remember going to the polling place and being met with these proposals that I had never heard of, and I really had no idea how to vote on. And Carrie says that when that happens, people have two main reactions. Yeah, so there's there's two strategies, and we haven't quite pinpointed down what types of people do what. But the the first strategy is uh, you just if you if you see something that's really confusing, you you vote no. Um, you just reje- it's called we call it the confusion penalty, and we just automatically reject it if we don't understand it. And then the second group of people uh, kind of do what we call like the rage quit, basically, where they just uh, don't vote at all. They abstain from voting on a ballot measure, and that's what people do when they encounter something that's really confusing. So a really confusing ballot measure actually has a very low probability of passing on Election Day, which I I don't know, maybe that's good. (laughs) We're going to come back to the scale of this idea in a little bit. But it's not just that there are so many ballot measures that go through the California referendum system. It's also that some of them kind of represent what the founding fathers were worried about when they created America's representative democracy instead of using a direct democracy system. The Founding Fathers worried about the tyranny of the majority, the idea that if put to a popular vote, the majority might vote to truly harm a minority group. And we saw that in California not that long ago. In 2008, there was a ballot proposition in California that would make same-sex marriage illegal. It was called Proposition 8, or commonly Prop 8. And on the same day that President Obama was elected, Californians elected to pass Prop 8 and ban same-sex marriage. Now, if this isn't a good example of the tyranny of the majority voting to take fundamental rights away from a minority, I'm not really sure what is. Today, Prop 8 is no longer valid since the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that bans on same-sex marriage were unconstitutional. But if America was run by a direct democracy system, we might still be living in a world where gay people can't get married. But Carrie says that there are ways to make direct democracy systems better than the one that California has. And weirdly enough, she says that actually the best thing to do is to make it harder to get something on the ballot. Yeah, um, I, I my home state, I come from Florida. I teach in Illinois, but I'm from Florida. Uh, Florida has, the legislature has kind of restricted the initiative process. Like they have this requirement that uh, an initiative has to pass by a supermajority, so it has to have 60% of the vote. Um, it's actually fairly costly to get an initiative on the ballot. Like you have to have well, just under like a million signatures, which is, which even for Florida is quite a lot, and they have to be distributed evenly throughout the state. Um, so 
states that have kind of made it a little tougher to qualify a measure for the ballot, I think, experience a little more of that utopian side than dystopian. Um, I think direct democracy works best when it's difficult to use and we use it sparingly because then it's a rare event. It's kind of a treat when you get to vote on a ballot measure and people uh, really like it. It makes them efficacious. They get informed. They trust government more. Um, But if you make it kind of a routine day-to-day thing, I think it would lose a lot of its sparkle. Now, when Carrie told me this, I was really surprised because if I had to guess, I would have guessed that the opposite would happen. If you make it really hard to get a ballot measure on, wouldn't it just be the groups that have tons of money who can put a ballot measure through? I mean, doesn't this just mean that the really rich people are in control again? That was my thought, too. And that was uh, basically what I wrote my dissertation on uh, was this issue of, like, who's funding the ballot measures in states where it's really tough to put one on the ballot. Because I wrote this in Florida, which where it is very difficult to qualify a proposal for the ballot. And what I found was the opposite. It was that states that make it harder to put a a ballot measure on the ballot. Well, first of all, they have fewer initiatives on the ballot, but we all expect that. There's no surprise there. But what I didn't expect to find was that when you make it tougher to put initiatives on the ballot, the initiatives that qualify tend to be ones that are initiated by citizen groups, kind of volunteer-driven citizen groups, not the deep-pocketed special interests, which to me was incredibly counterintuitive. And the reason, she says, is pretty simple. And the reason why is that when you make it more costly to use direct democracy, um, interest groups don't want to invest their resources in that effort unless they think their measure can actually pass. And we know that confusing ballot measures, like really technical ones that have to do with industrial regulation, they're tough for us to understand. And they're more likely to suffer that confusion penalty of people that either get angry at it and vote no, or just abstain entirely and and don't contribute to its passage rate. So we actually find the opposite, that the tougher you make it to put an initiative on the ballot, you get more of those easy-to-understand measures that arguably people can make informed decisions on. So we have some precedent for direct democracy in the United States, but it's on a state-by-state basis, and it's not every single piece of the government, just one or two bills a year, or in California, 10 to 15. When we come back, we're going to talk about what might happen if we tried to apply this concept to the entire country, how those votes would be collected, and what could go so, so very wrong. But first, a quick break. Okay, so this week we're traveling to a future where instead of electing politicians, Americans take matters into their own hands and have to craft and vote on every bill themselves. We've talked about how some states have a certain kind of direct democracy, but let's think about how this might work if applied to the entire nation. And the first thing I want to talk about is scale. There are a lot of bills being discussed in Congress right now. Yeah, they definitely get around to it between fundraisers, so... (laughs) From 2013 to 2014, the House of Representatives considered 3,809 bills, and they passed 223. The Senate looked at 1,894 bills and passed 356 of them. And that's just national politics. If you had to read and vote on every one of those considered bills, that's 15 things to look at and vote on every day. Here's another way to think about this. In 2013, the Federal Register, which is like this daily newspaper type thing that records what's going on in Washington, was 80,462 pages long. I like to read, and I don't know if I read 80,000 pages every year. 
And this is just too much for us to handle. I mean, in California, where you get 10 to 15 bills every year, people still abstain at really high rates. We, the people, get very fatigued very quickly and very easily. I mean, you give us 15 ballot measures a year, uh, we get kind of tired and start slacking off a bit. We do pretty good with, you know, one to four. But you give us any more than that, we kind of, you know, stop paying attention um, or abstain from voting. Which brings us to another piece of this possible future. If we are going to have people drafting and voting on bills all the time, it does not make sense to force them to go to a polling place every day. So this future comes with some new technology, too. A voting app. Now, voting on a website or an app is something that people have been talking about for a while. And one of the main advantages of being able to vote using a device is that it makes voting way more accessible. Yeah, no, absolutely. So you know, one of the, the biggest you know, positive changes that we can make in voting systems is to allow people to vote on the um, tools that they already use on a day-to-day basis. So using their own you know, iPhone, if that's what they're familiar with, or using their own home computer that they have set up uh, for them at the right height for their body. Um, you know, those are the types of things that are, are very powerful, letting people actually be able to interact. That's Daniel Castro. He's the vice president of the Information Technology and Innovation Fund, which is a think tank focused on technology and innovation. And a couple of years ago, his team took a look at voting technology. And what they found was that making voting easier by letting people use devices that are already customized to their needs is a huge deal. And it's also in the environment that they're in. It's not only the the tool. Um, you know, one of the challenges that people have with going to a polling place today is that you know it it can be noisy. If you have um, PTSD, you don't want to be in a loud, crowded environment. You know, you want to be at home. If you you know have social anxieties, um, you know you don't want to you know go and interact with somebody. You want to be in the comfort of a familiar place like your home to do something that can be you know stressful, which is voting and making decisions. Um, so there's a there's a lot that you can do by you know allowing people to vote um, with tools they're comfort with comfortable with and an environment that they're comfortable with. They also found that giving people more time to vote can make the whole experience better for everybody. I mean, one of the the biggest changes in our research was that um, you know people want to be able to use something to assist them in making decisions. So they want to be able to basically research who's on the ballot as they're voting, or at least do it beforehand and kind of bring that information with them. And it's often um, kind of difficult to do or not allowed, or people aren't sure if it's allowed, and so they just don't do it. Um, but you, you know, you get on these, you get to these ballots, and you you realize there's something on there that you forgot to look up. Um, you realize there's a um, you know a, a referendum. Um, on the ballot and you actually don't know how you feel about it. You're not sure exactly what the wording means. And, you know, you're trying to make these decisions and you feel pressured to do it quickly because, you know, you're in this kind of public place. Maybe there's a line, you know, maybe there's something you have to go to next. Um, And that's a very different experience than, you know, being in a um, environment where there's no time constraints. Um, You know, you you can start and stop at your leisure. Um, You can, you know, use additional reference material. And, and that can change just kind of the, um, you know, basically if you're an informed voter or not and how information shapes your decisions. Now, if everybody is voting on their phones all the time, there are some weird things that would have to change about campaign rules and all of that. Right now, a lot of the um, campaigning uh, laws are based around um, polling places. So you have a lot of laws, for example, to say you can't campaign within, you know, 100 feet of a, a polling site. Um if you're voting at home, you know, suddenly 
that changes, you know, the polling sites, the individual home or the individual, you know, as they're moving throughout the city um, with their mobile device. And so those campaign laws don't really work anymore. And so I think, um, you know, that will be something that will have to be addressed in the future because, you know, if you can vote when you're sitting in front of a billboard that says, you know, vote for so-and-so or, you know, scan here to vote for me or something, you know, that just changes kind of um, the political uh, campaign environment. But those wouldn't be so hard to figure out, I don't think. So let's say this all works perfectly. Just go with me to this utopia for a second. Everything works really great. Everybody's really happy. We're all securely and safely writing bills and voting on our phones. And because there are no barriers to voting anymore, turnout and participation skyrockets. Now, most people vote. Yay! What does the United States look like when the half of the population who doesn't vote today suddenly starts voting? Well... America probably looks really different because voting and not voting in this country is really clearly tied up in two things. The United States has the most stratified of, you know, what uh, rich countries uh, of turnout based on income and education. That's Sean McElwee. He's a policy analyst at an organization called Demos, which studies democracy in America. And his research focuses on the differences between people who do vote and people who don't. And those groups, it turns out, have really different opinions about things. The sort of going opinion in political science for a good amount of time was that the non-voters and the voters were the voters were essentially a representative slice of the American population, um, essentially like a a good weighted sample or whatever. Um, but what the, the more recent research by people like Jan Lely, Jonathan Nagler has shown is that's not true. And on core issues related to size of government and class and redistribution, we actually do find differences. So in Sean's research, he found that on certain topics, there were huge separations between voters and non-voters in what they want out of government. So 46 percent of non-registered voters supported the idea of free community college. Only 7 percent of registered voters agreed. Just over 20 percent of non-registered voters agreed with the statement, government aid to the poor is good. And among registered voters, more people actually disagreed with that statement than agreed with it. And when you look more closely at these groups and separate them by income levels, you find even bigger gaps. Sean compared voters who earn over $150,000 a year with non-voters who earn less than $30,000 a year to see if their answers were different. And they really, really were. Poor non-voters wanted the government to increase services, increase spending on the poor, guarantee jobs and standards of living, and reduce inequality. Rich voters answered completely the opposite. They opposed, on the whole, every single one of those things. So if everybody voted, what you would see is a pretty radically different allocation of government resources. Internationally, there is a very strong correlation between voter turnout and size of government. Um, there's also a very strong correlation between sort of low-income, low-education turnout and uh, services for low-income, low-education people. Uh, so I think that if you had higher levels of turnout, you would have certainly more responsive and representative government. But there's also a dystopian future to be had here, if that's more your style. Because there are a couple of things that could go very wrong in this system. We've already talked about being overwhelmed by the amount of stuff that we would have to vote on. 
found, my favorite one that I found is a resolution designating September 25th, 2015 as National Lobster Day. Yeah, yeah. Vote on that if you'd like. <laughs> I, I hadn't thought of that. I mean, you know, I want to say that doesn't matter, but I don't know. Maybe there are extra, maybe there's big spillover effects if we were to name the lobster, lobster day. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, see, I hadn't thought about that. And see, I would automatically just say, oh, this doesn't matter, but, but maybe it does. <laughs> but there's another huge problem here that has to do with online voting, which is that it's really, really hard to make an online voting system that is secure. And when it comes to determining the future of our government, you really want that system to be secure. In 2010, Washington, D.C. was working on an internet voting system that would let absentee voters and voters abroad go online to cast their ballot. Before they actually launched the system, they opened it up to security researchers to see if they could break it. After just 36 hours, a team of researchers at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor had pretty much completely infiltrated the system. And the people overseeing the website actually didn't notice the hack for two days. So D.C. does not have an online voting system. Now, there are online voting systems elsewhere. Estonia has had online voting since 2005, and today about a third of their citizens vote online. But the Estonians have a few things that make that a little more plausible than it is in America. And that same Ann Arbor team who hacked the D.C. system actually says that the Estonian system is vulnerable to attack, too. So in the dystopian version of this future, everybody is totally overwhelmed with the number of things they are supposed to have opinions about. People that actually do vote are probably going to make some bad decisions simply because they're uninformed about what they're voting on. They're stressed out and flooded with constant requests to vote. If you pull back to the national level, and we're voting on Lobster Day. We're voting on, um, you know, the, the the trade policy. We're we're voting on. Hey, do we build that wall? I mean, then then I think it's gonna you're gonna get people making people that actually do vote are probably gonna make some bad decisions. And other people are just gonna stop voting altogether. And the online system could be hacked with votes sold to the highest bidder. All you need is money to win an election, which actually kind of sounds like what we have now. I actually don't foresee that future as being particularly utopian or, or dystopian. Um, I don't see it as being all that different uh, from what we have today. That's all for this episode. Direct Democracy is a huge topic, and I know we only talked about America here, but we'll post links and more information on all of this in the show notes. And a special shout out to any Swedes who are listening. I know you all have a form of direct democracy, and that's super interesting. There will be more on that on the website. I have not forgotten about you. What do you think? Do you vote yes or no on direct democracy? Tell us. Send us a voice memo to info at flashforwardpod.com or call and leave a voicemail at 347-927-1425. Flash Forward is produced by me, Rose Eveleth, and is part of the Boing Boing podcast family. The intro music is by Asura, the break music is by MC Kulla, and the outro music is by Broke for Free. The episode art is by Matt Lubchansky. If you want to suggest a future, respond to this future, or just say hi. You can find us on all kinds of social media sites. We're on Twitter, Facebook, Reddit, Tumblr, Instagram, pretty much any place that you want to be. Or you can send us an old-fashioned email at info at flashforwardpod.com. If you want to support the show, there are a few ways you could do that, too. We have a Patreon page where you can donate, and I really want to thank everybody who has donated. You are keeping the lights on over here. But if that's not in the cards for you, you can head to iTunes and leave us a nice review, or just tell your friends about us. Those things really do help. 
that's all for this feature. Come back next time and we'll travel to a new one.